On today's Ear Snack, we travel across the pond to Great Britain to discuss Dennis Nilsson, who killed at least 12 men, bathed the bodies, posed with the bodies, masturbated to the bodies, dismembered the bodies, stored the bodies beneath his floorboards, posed and masturbated with them again, burned them, and flushed them down his toilet. It's a doozy today. Lather, rinse, and repeat. On For the Love of Murder. Hey listeners, this may come as a surprise, but this podcast is about murder. Due to the graphic nature of our stories, listener discretion is advised. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to For the Love of Murder. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. My name is Andy. Sitting across from me, as always, is my impeccably beautiful fiance, Ange. Hola, bitches. And welcome to For the Love of Murder, where murder is a given. And humor is a must. What's new? What do we need to talk about? So on this fucking lockdown. Oh, God. And we're going stir crazy. It's ridiculous. This needs to... Let's just... Cabin fever is real. It is. And I like to stay home, you know, most of the time. But I'm even like, can I get some Tex-Mex? Is it bad that I kind of feel like I'm turning into... Jack Torrance right now? Yes, that is actually really bad for me. <laughs> Probably very concerning. Strictly for me. Yeah, I'll work and no play. Makes Andy a dull boy. If you are quit, <laughs> if you come through the door, I'm going to tell you what. <laughs> Wendy? I will damn not, it. I will not be like Wendy. No, you wouldn't. You'd kick the shit out of me. No, I'm not even playing. <laughs> well, we thought we had a doozy of a story with Catherine Knight. Apparently, I was very incorrect in thinking that. So I know we said we were going to do the switching back and forth. Um, I actually think Andy's a better storyteller, and I think that he is better um, on that end, and I'm better on this end to kind of just... You're a better hype man. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, like, I'm a, I'm a good wingman, you yes, know? Yes, definitely. Although, to give you props, you did pick this story out. I knew nothing about this jackass until you turn me on to him. Maybe that's the wrong way to say it. Whoa, you better ease up. <laughs> Beaver Kong. Um, yeah, I, I did some of the the uh, research for this episode. Um, so I know probably about a quarter of it. And then the rest I don't know much about. Um, but I hear our doozy of a uh, original Jeffrey Dahmer is going to be a good one today. Yes, he very much compares to Jeffrey Dahmer in a lot of ways. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm more of a serial killer buff myself. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to this story. Um, I often, you know, what, you know, we all, most of us probably watch Mindhunters. If you don't, Netflix, there's your free plug. Um, <laughs> it's an amazing series um, that goes with the guys who um, started the BAU. Yeah. Um, and I always kind of am, am, intrigued about where kind of that the psyche goes eh, eh, like where there's that click where something goes from I'm a normal human being to a complete and utter dick bag <laughs> um, and I think this story kind of has a few when I was you know doing yeah. some of the research I was like oh I see where we're kind of maybe starting to head down that steep hill here yeah there's definitely a few trigger points I think that you can see coming out of this 
Yeah, I have a lot of questions as well with with some of the certain um, parts of the story that I researched. Um, well, hopefully we'll get them answered for yeah, you. Hopefully. Well, yeah, you- also, um, if you hear the ding, ding, ding in the back, um, we have a new puppy. His name is Jack. <laughs> Fittingly named after Jack Torrance. And he actually is a Halloween baby, so it's fitting. So uh, we we tried to put him upstairs, but he's... Uh, He's not having that. He's so. a baby. He's wanting to wander around. Yeah. So if you hear the the uh, ting, 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 it's his collar and he's just living his best life down here with us. And, you know, just to go along with how our life goes for the past about week that we've had him fucking silent. But as soon as I hit record, he finds something to get into and start smashing around like he's never done this before. He, exactly. I just I mean, he's actually a really good pup. He's a Yorkie. Um, mix with what is it? A uh, I don't know. I can't pronounce it's, it. It's I don't know. It's it's in the toy family, but he's about five pounds, and he's the cutest freaking thing. But yeah, apparently now he he's going to show his personality. Well, and and proving he is a true member of our family because he's an asshole. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, hey, when you know, you know. All right. Well, we got to do a little disclaimer. As always, uh, this, of course, is a true crime podcast. We're going to be talking about a lot of sick shit. Surprise. Uh, But we're also going to be making fun of a lot of stuff, too. So we'll do our best not to make fun of the victims or victims' families, that kind of thing, out of respect for them. But, you know, there are some crazy-ass fuckers in this world, this guy being one of them. So uh, we are going to be injecting some humor. So if that's not your thing, goodbye. listen elsewhere. What do you say we jump right in? Let's do it. All right. For this uh, doozy of a story, we're heading all the way around the globe again to Aberdeenshire, Scotland is where our story begins, which is funny because Catherine Knight was from Aberdeen, Australia. So let's not get this confused. When I read that, I thought, oh, geez, here we go. (laughs) This bitch better not show up in this story. Well, she doesn't need to because this guy's a hundred times worse than Ugh, she was. See, I didn't I didn't get to the good parts. So this starts off in the small coastal town of Fraserburg, which is in Aberdeenshire, Scotland. Uh, and just to give you some points of reference, Fraserburg... Get in my belly. <laughs> get in my belly. I, I would just like to say I really enjoy the, Scot- the Scottish accent. I'm American, so I'm an asshole, and I can't do it. So I just try, and then I sound like... Fat bastard from fucking Austin Powers. Well, luckily, this doesn't last long because we'll be moving to London here very early in the story so we can all put our British accents on for that section. Which is equally as amazing, may I add? Yes. So, Fraserburg. Uh, Just for some points of reference, it's about uh, three and a half hours northeast of Glasgow, if you know where that is. Um, So, if you look at a map of Scotland, Fraserburg's kind of way up in the northeast section on the coast there. Uh, Fraserburg is, I guess, most well known for being the biggest shellfish port in all of Scotland uh, and really one of the largest in all of Europe. They brought in 5,450 tons of shellfish in 2016. Jesus. That's a lot of fucking shrimp. Are they like tripping to Antarctica and back? I mean, is there really that much shellfish in that general region? Uh, Apparently, this is the mother load of shellfish. I mean, good for you guys. So there in Fraserburg on November 23rd, 1945, our little buddy, Dennis Nilsson, is born. Denny! He's the second of three children born to Elizabeth Duthie White and a Norwegian soldier named Olav Magnus Moksheen. 
uh, who that's would, intense. He'd later adopt the surname Nilsson, so that's where you get the last name from. Was he knighted, you think? Uh, who fucking knows? I mean, they were just like, I, I knight you, Sir I, Nielsen. Well, again, we're getting into this whole, like, dukes and, like, who the fuck? Yeah, I don't know I don't how know. this shit works. Can somebody please just at least comment with how this shit goes? Is it just, like, changing your name? Like, you know, if we just were like, hey, I want to be purple rainbow dipshit and they're like okay just come on down and change it i don't know apparently we're very ignorant to how this shit works most americans are yeah yeah true so we'll agree with that so uh good old dennis's parents married in 1942 and moved into elizabeth's parents home so this is uh his grandma's or grandparents home um their marriage was described as a difficult uh olav spent most of his time away and was rarely home um, and after the birth of their third child, Elizabeth said that, quote, she rushed into marriage without thinking, end quote, and the couple divorced in 1948. So it took not one, not two, but three children to go, eh, team timeout, uh, this was a bad sitch. Well, you know, when you're not happy in a marriage, you just, you know, you just keep having kids because it's supposed to make you happy. Yeah, that's what they say, yeah, right? That's, yeah, that's what they say. Uh, so Dennis, his brother Olaf Jr., and his sister Sylvia were told to have been conceived during their father's brief and sporadic visits to the oh, home. Well, that makes sense then. So, you know, he shows up and I guess gets what he wants and he's back out to do whatever the fuck he wants to do. Uh, but Dennis, however, he ends up getting really close with his grandfather. Uh, he spends a great deal of time with him. Um, basically, his grandfather works on a fishing boat, so he is out to sea a lot of the time, but... Um, he was known to spend a lot of time with his grandson, Dennis, when he was not out fishing. Um, Dennis, later in life, described his grandfather as being his, quote, great hero and protector, end quote, and said that his life was empty until he returned from fishing. So it looks like really his grandfather's about the only dude he's got in his life. Well, and I also, when I was doing the research for the first bit of this, it did st it did state that now, mind you, there's two other children. There's uh, his brother and sister, but the grandfather seemed to be really taken with Dennis specifically, and they would go on, quote-unquote, walks for hours at a time, just the two of them. So um, I kind of, you know, I was a little weirded out by that. I just kind of thought, you know, there's a brother and the sister, you know, and he never made any claims but i just thought it was kind of a strange like maybe there was something kind of inappropriate happening there yeah and maybe that i i don't know i mean i hate to make those kind of accusations or speculations but it just seemed odd to me you know especially being a parent i just kind yeah. of thought you know kind of singling one child out as opposed to the others just kind of seemed a bit strange to me yeah yeah, I definitely wonder what's going on there. Well, in 1951, his grandfather dies of a heart attack while he's out to sea fishing at the age of 62. And Dennis becomes very withdrawn and quiet in the years following his death. Um, Dennis rarely participates in family things like gatherings and stuff or anything the family does together. Dennis doesn't want to be a part of it. Um, and he also declines any affection his family tries to give him. So you see him kind of like sinking into a shell here. Yeah, this, I think that's where that switch something. He might have been a little off before that, clearly, I'm sure, with what we're going to be getting into. But then it seems like that, that switch kind of dialed over into the kind of almost 
can't go back from that type. I mean, right. Yeah. It just, it's sad. Well, then here's another kind of major event in 1954 at nine years old, Dennis almost drowns and said that he believed his grandfather was coming to pull him out before a great sense of tranquility came over him during the drowning. Um, basically what happened though, an older child came to his rescue and was seen pulling him to shore, but he does have this moment, really a near death experience. Um, and he later described seeing his grandfather rescuing him, even though clearly granddad's gone. I mean, that's fucking terrible. So as a reminder, his, uh, parents divorced, you know, a number of years ago, but his mother goes on to remarry and she marries a man named Andrew Scott in 1955. And she ends up having four more children uh, with Mr. Scott. So we're up to seven kids. So here's another story where, like, they just keep popping the kids out. But, I, you know, back in the day, that's kind of... I mean, we have three kids, and I birthed two of those. I truly <laughs> cannot imagine popping out seven... I mean, I mean, that's barefoot and pregnant for, I mean, Lord... Yeah, almost seven total years. Jeez, oh, Pete. Yeah. That's a lot for anybody, I think. So, uh, at the onset of puberty... Oh, here we go. Dennis discovers that he's homosexual. Oh, okay. Uh, which in initially confused him, um, and he kept his sexuality hidden from his family and his few friends that he had. Yeah, because they would berate him and, you know call them all i'm sure all kinds of you know because back then i mean nobody's gay right 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 I mean, everybody likes the opposite sex there's no way yeah, that you, you're like yeah it's just sad well and i found this interesting too many of the boys to whom dennis is attracted to had similar facial features to his younger sister sylvia um and basically this prompts him on one occasion to sexually mm -hmm. fondle his own sister uh, believing that his attraction towards boys might be a manifestation of the care that he feels for her. Okay. So again, I'm going to stop you there. So we know that, you know, a lot of times when people are sexually abused, um, specifically men, they tend to do the same. So I don't, that's I, going back to the grandfather. Yeah. As a at. normal human being, that's not ever something that I thought, nah, maybe I'll give it a try. Yeah. Right. It just seems, I mean, he was young, correct? Yes. Yes. This was very early on. So, yeah. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to check mark that as find it weird. Yes, definitely. Um, he also made no efforts to seek sexual contact with any of the peers uh, to whom he was sexually attracted to. Although he later said he had been fondled by an older youth and did not find the experience unpleasant. So basically, an older boy kind of fondled, messed around with them, and he thought, okay, kind of like this. Well, if you're out there, you're a fucking dickbag. Yeah. On one occasion, Dennis also caressed and fondled the body of his older brother as he slept. As a result of this, his brother, Olav Jr., began to suspect his brother was homosexual and regularly belittled him in public. Yeah, because that'll help. Right, yeah, that, that'll help Dennis well, that, along here. That'll really just take the gay out. And I guess he would call Dennis a hen, which basically is Scottish slang for girl. That's what they call girls in Scotland. What a hens. dickweed. 
So Nelson initially believed that his fondling of his sister may have been evidence that he was bisexual. So now he's kind of questioning himself, you know. So like, he's hey. just all over the map, confused about what's going on. Yeah, and then he's Poor got his kid, you know, older brother, yeah, being yeah. a dick bag, already a mess, and he's just now turning fourteen. Oh, man. So at age 14, Dennis joined the Army Cadet Force, viewing the British Army as a potential avenue for escaping his rural origins. So in mid-1964, he was assigned to the 1st Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers in Osnabrück, West Germany, where he served as a private. In this deployment, Dennis began to increase his intake of alcohol. So he's, he's traveling down the path of an alcoholic here. Oh, going down the JD route. He described himself and his colleagues as, quote, hardworking, boozy lot. Uh, his colleagues recalled he often drank to excess in order to ease his shyness. And on one occasion, Dennis and a German youth drank themselves into a stupor. When Dennis awoke, he found himself on the floor of the German youth's flat. No sexual activity had occurred, but this incident fueled Dennis's sexual fantasies, which initially involved his sexual partner, invariably a young, slender male, being completely passive. These fantasies gradually evolved into his partner being unconscious or dead. That seems like a big fucking leap to me. Like, I understand, like, knowing what you're like, ah, I like the young slender guys. But then, like, that leap into, you know, this is going to kind of morph into, I like looking at them when they're dead. And it's not even like, you know, he he was, you know, having sex with this guy and then was like, oh, you passed out drunk and like, oh, you know, kind of. Like, this is just a complete manifestation in his mind. Right. Not even taken from an experience. It's just completely made up. Yes. And on several occasions, Dennis also made tentative efforts to have his own prone body sexually interfered with by one of his colleagues. So basically, in these instances, whenever he and his colleagues drank their minds out, Nilsson would pretend that he was more inebriated than he was in the hope that one of his colleagues would make sexual use of his unconscious body. Like he's pretending to be passed out drunk. Oh, so he assumes everybody's as fucked up as he is. Right. So like he's basically, you know, fake passing out and, you know, sitting there with one eye open like, anybody going to come over? And... That's fucking rape, bro. Yeah, it's not it's fucking cool. Up. Nobody's. No, stop it. And if you didn't think that things had taken a turn yet, here's where things really take a turn. Well, here we go. In 1967, he was stationed to the state of Aden, which is now southern Yemen. Dennis Ugh. was ki he's kidnapped by an Arab taxi driver who beat him unconscious and placed him in the trunk of the taxi. Oh, God. He's getting off on this, isn't he? Here uh, we go. Upon being dragged out of the trunk of the taxi, Dennis grabbed a jack handle and knocked the fuck out of the taxi driver and beat him unconscious. Good job, Denny. He then, in turn, locks the taxi driver in the trunk of the taxi. <laughs> the tables have turned. So, uh, basically, he ends up developing these fantasies of sex with an unresistant or deceased, excuse me, deceased partner. Uh, he's really escalating quickly. Yeah. So, and obviously he hasn't done this yet, so he's very unfulfilled at this time. So he compensates by imagining sexual encounters with an unconscious body as he masturbates while looking at his own prone nude body in a mirror. On one occasion, Dennis discovers that by using a freestanding mirror, he could cre create like an illusion by positioning the mirror so his head was out of view. He could then visualize himself engaging in a sexual act with another man. So 
he sets up this mirror where he can't see his own face and then pretends that the body he sees in the mirror is somebody completely different. Like, dude, just go out and have sex with the dude, man. It's okay. You're gay. Nobody cares. Like, do you? Right. What the fuck kind of fuckery is this? So to Dennis, though, this created the ideal circumstance in which he could visually split his personality. Oh, but shit. Just think about that statement for a section for a second. He's visually splitting his personality. So in these fantasies, Dennis envisioned himself as being both the domineering and the passive partner. These fan these fantasies gradually evolved to incorporate his own near death experience with the Arab taxi driver the dead bodies he had seen in Aden during his time in the military, and imagery within a 19th century oil painting entitled The Raft of Medusa, which depicts an old man holding the limp, nude body of dead youth as he sits aside the dismembered body of another young male. I, where do you find these paintings? And it's crazy how people become obsessed with them. I mean, oof. I just... I mean, the escalation is is real here. I don't. I mean, that whole mirror bit. I'm not even really sure how to. I'm how just to, trying to envision that. Like, you can't. It's too fucking weird. Yeah, it is. It's creepy. I mean, at least at this point, you don't have to envision you having like you can just go out and have sex with a dude. Like, you don't even need to envision it. Just go do it. Right. Like, dude, man, you don't live at home. You're not around your dickhead brother. Like, if you want to be gay, man, be gay. Well, in 1969, he has his first sexual encounter with a female. Oh, shit. Um, basically, this is a prostitute that he hires because he wants to see what, what the talk's about. And he later describes this experience as, quote, overrated and depressing. Yeah, because you like dick, bro. Yeah, like... Why, why is he trying to force... Now, again, we're talking about a different time. We're talking about, you know, 1960s. So I'm sure he probably feels shameful. He shouldn't. No. But it seems here like maybe he's trying to force, you know, seeing if he could be heterosexual. I I don't know. That's sad. It, that yes. really is sad that somebody feels like they, they have to do that. In 1972, he leaves the military. He moves back home. Uh, we should also note that in the time that he spent in the military, he spent most of his time as a cook. So he's getting some training and some cooking here. Oh, shit. Shades of Katie. Oh, God. Denny and Katie. So at one point, pretty soon after moving back home with mom, um, his entire family is watching this documentary about homosexuality. Oh, of course they are. Of course they are. Well... His whole family's there, his mom, his brother, his sister, right? And they basically start talking shit about homosexuals and how wrong it is. Well, Dennis kind of starts speaking up and becoming defensive about the subject, um, and a fight ensues. And basically this fight ends when his dickhead brother, Olav Jr. here, announces to everyone that Dennis is gay. So he hasn't come Yeah, because that's your fucking, that's your job. Right. Stay in your own fucking lane, dickhead. Yeah. So, you know, Dennis is pissed. He leaves, never talks to his brother again. That's Clearly. the last time he ever talks to his yeah. brother. Um, and then he goes on to only sporadically communicate with his mom and his sister randomly through letters, like one or two a year he may send just to give them the what's up. But besides that, he's, he's fucking done with his family at this point. That's sad. 
In December of 1972, Dennis moves to London and joins the Metro Police Force. Of course he does. Uh, It's something that interests him. However, this only lasts a year until December 1973 when he resigns. So now he's living in London. And in November of 1975, um, he runs into a 20-year-old man named David Galachin. Uh, He runs into him outside of a pub. The two men spent the evening drinking and talking. And Nilsson learns that Galachin had recently moved to London, was homosexual, unemployed, and resided in a hostel, which I think everybody knows what a hostel is. Mm -hmm. Um, The following morning, both men agreed to live together because they're both kind of down and out. Hey, let's live together in a larger residence. Like, let's rent a bigger place together. Um, And basically, uh, Nilsson uses a lot of the inheritance uh, that was left to him by the recent passing of his father. So his father around this period has passed. Oh, that dickhead passed. Okay. Yeah, he got $1,000, and and he uses that to uh, rent a ground floor flat at 195 Melrose Avenue in Cricklewood. Uh, which is there in London. I imagine it's not the same Melrose Avenue that we have here in L.A. I think completely different. Okay. Um, so Nilsson negotiates a deal with the landlord where basically he and Galachin have exclusive use of the garden, which is at the rear of the property. So this is one of those, like, it's a large home that's been split up into, you know, different, each level's its own kind of apartment or flat, they call it. Well, he works out this deal where he's like, hey, we want the garden out back for us and us only. And somehow he works out this deal. This kind of comes into play later. Oh, okay. So Nilsson said that he was sexually attracted to Galachin, uh, but apparently the pair rarely had sex. Um, they got into more and more frequent arguments, mostly because Galachin wouldn't keep employment. You know, there were like kind of money issues. I think Dennis felt like he was paying for a lot of shit. They're fighting a lot. They're not having sex. And eventually they split up. Well, you met him at a hostel, dude. Nilsson forms brief relationships with several other young men over the following about year and a half. Um, None of these relationships lasted more than a few weeks. And none of the men expressed any intention on living with Nilsson on a permanent basis. So he's really looking for um, the, the research you know, I ended up doing on this. He, he's, re- he's really wanting like a, a partner in life. Like he is, Aww. he's not about bouncing around on the one night stands. Like he wants somebody to live with, have a life with, kind of have their own little family. And he kind of becomes obsessed with like this. Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> you know, he's got, he's got the fam and the cute husband. Yeah. But he's want you know, he's wanting some normalcy in all this. Which, which kind of goes into what ends up happening, if you think about it. He wants somebody who's not going to leave him. Yeah, that makes sense. So by uh, the end of 1978, Nilsson's still living alone. Um, he's experienced three failed relationships and later confessed to having the belief that he was unfit to live with. Um, oh. Throughout 1978, he spent most evenings consuming alcohol while listening to music by himself. Oh, shit. So he's really kind of, you know, kind of given up on himself, I think, where he just thinks he's no Did good. Did J.D. read this book? <laughs> I'm, I, right? He may have read this story and been like, well, hold my beer, bro. Yeah. So December 30th, 1978, Nilsson runs into a 14-year-old named Stephen Holmes outside... Oh, of the Cricklewood Arms Pub. Um, you'll notice pubs play a huge role in this as well. Basically, Holmes had gone inside and tried to get alcohol, 
but was unsuccessful. They figured out he was too young, booted him. Um, Nilsson said that he had been drinking heavily that day uh, when he decided to leave his flat and find company, quote, at all costs. Okay. So he's a little desperate here. Nilsson invites Holmes back to his flat with the promise of more drinking. Hey, dude, got alcohol at my place. You know, come share. That 14-year-old was like, zing. Yeah, right? Exactly. So they both drink heavily and they fall asleep. Well, the 14-year-old the did. Actually, they both fall asleep. The following morning, Nilsson wakes up. Holmes is still sleeping. So Nilsson's later quoted as saying, I was afraid to wake him in case he left me. But he wanted this guy oh to stay. Oh, my gosh. So Nilsson caresses... This kid's in seventh grade, bro. I, right. He caresses Holmes's body while he's sleeping. He's kind of running his hands on him. Nilsson decides that he wants Holmes to, quote, stay with me over the new year whether he wanted to or not, end quote. That's criminal confinement, bro. Well, and this is the point where Nilsson decides to strangle Holmes. Oh, my God. So he gets a necktie, and he strangles Holmes until he's unconscious. Where the fuck is this kid's parents that this 14-year-old is staying out till fucking for three days, and they're just like, yeah, he's probably on a bender. Right. So he strangles him with a necktie until he's unconscious and then drowns him in a bucket of water. Jesus. Nilsson then masturbates twice over Holmes's body. He binds the body and places it beneath his floorboard where the body remains for eight months. Oh, that probably smelled delicious. Yeah, so he, he, puts, he puts this kid under his floorboards and leaves him there for months. On August 11th, 1979, Nilsson builds a bonfire in his backyard and burns Holmes's body. Oh, my God. Nilsson would later say, quote, I cause dreams which cause death. This is my crime. I started down the avenue of death in possession of a new kind of flatmate. Oh, my God. So basically, he's realizing by killing these guys and keeping their bodies there, he's got someone that's not going to leave them. Oh, Denny. That's not the way to go, bro. Yeah. So on October 11th, 1979, Nilsson attempts to murder a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho, whom he'd met in a pub, and lured to his flat on the promise of sex. So hold up here. He met a he met a kid from Hong Kong named Andrew. Yeah, Ho, Andrew Ho. I mean, the last name fits. I'm just wondering where the hell Andrew came from. I don't know. Okay, I well, don't know. Andrew Ho, if you're out there, send us a mess. So Nilsson attempts to strangle Ho, but he manages to flee from the flat and report the incident to police. Nilsson is questioned in the relation. Uh, Nilsson is questioned in relation to the incident, but Ho ends up deciding not to press any charges. Oh, damn it. Had a, had the chance to get him right then, but we didn't. Two months after the attempted murder of Ho on December 3rd, 1979, Nilsson runs into a 23-year-old Canadian student named Kenneth Ockenden in a West End pub. Upon learning that Ockenden was a tourist, Nilsson offered to show him several London landmarks. Well, Nilsson, yeah, I bet he did. <laughs> is his dick one of them? Nilsson then invites him back to his house on the promise of a meal and further drinks. Nelson ends up strangling Ogden with the cable of his earphones as he's listening to music. So this kid's sitting there listening to music and... And he's just jamming to Bon Jovi. Yeah. Or the Beatles, whatever it is. After Ogden is dead, Nelson pours himself a glass of rum and continues to listen to music with the same headphones he just strangled Ogden with. Wow. Well, that's... Boy, 
This is getting serious. The next day, Nilsson takes photos of Ockenden in various suggestive positions before wrapping the body in plastic bags and placing the body under the floorboard. Does nobody fucking smell this? Right. You would think. We're, we don't live in a butcher shop or a fucking paper factory. What is that fucking smell? Over the next two weeks, Nilsson removed Ockenden's body from beneath his floorboards and sat the body up in his armchair alongside him as he watched TV and drank alcohol. Jesus Christ. So he's going, he's going, he's opening the floor back up and dragging these bodies back out, sitting them in chairs and like hanging out with them like they're boyfriends and then putting them back under the floorboards. Oh, my God. Denny, what are you doing, bro? Yeah. So on May 17th, 1980, Nilsson meets a 16-year-old named Martin Duffy at a train station. Duffy had run away from home and had been sleeping near the train station when Nilsson runs into him. So he offers Duffy a meal and a place to sleep. That night, Nilsson strangles Duffy, no surprise, while uh, sitting on his chest. So he describes this as he's strangling him with like a necktie and like sitting and bouncing up and down on his chest to get him to stop breathing. Oh my God, that is horrifying. Once Duffy is unconscious, Nilsson drags his body to the kitchen sink and drowns him in the kitchen sink. Jeez, oh Pete. Nilsson then takes a bath with Duffy's body and later called Duffy, quote, the youngest looking I had ever seen. Nilsson places what Duffy's the body... Fuck? First in a kitchen chair, then on the bed, where Nilsson kissed and caressed the body. Oh, my God. He masturbates while sitting on Duffy's stomach. He then stores Duffy's body in a cupboard for two days before Nilsson noticed some bloating and some signs of decomposition. Oh, did he? And then he moves him under the floorboards. Oh, okay, okay. Just a little bit of bloat. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's Just a little bit of pooling on not that. A, not attracted anymore. What? Oh, my... What is happening here? Yeah. So now after Duffy's murder, Nilsson begins killing more frequently. He starts stepping it up. I don't know. If we look back at the dates, I think we're looking at like once every six months. Now we start, you can see he's progressing and it's, it's the rate is becoming quicker. Escalation is happening. Yes. So before the end of 1980, Nilsson kills five more victims and, a, Lord. and attempts to kill another one. Only one of these victims who Nilsson murdered, 26-year-old William David Sutherland, has ever been identified. So of these uh, six that we're talking about right now, there's five of them. We still don't know who they are to this day. Wow. Like, no family miss... Like... You know, they say that they think some of these victims, especially the unidentified ones, were homeless that he'd pick up at the train station or the the tube station, like the subway station. I know that you said the first guy worked at a hostel, so maybe they're, you know, working guys or, you know, something like that where he's picking them up off the street. That could be, yeah, that could be too. Well, you hinted at it. Eventually, the bodies beneath his floorboards attracted insects and created a horrible smell. You I, don't fucking say. I can only fucking imagine. I, I mean, the, I wish you guys were here to see the shock on my face. <laughs> <laughs> and and it and it took five fucking people right for that for someone to go uh hey Betty have you smelled that lingering smell ever since fucking Denny moved in upstairs well no one's fucking noticed it yet no one's noticed it yet except him he's just saying that this is the point in time where the smell is starting to be bad I just want to know I you know 
you can't keep your damn neighbor from being nosy, but these motherfuckers are just hands off, don't know what happened. Oh, shit, I don't know what that's... Hey, somebody's cooking some food. Yeah, like there's other people that live in this building. Right. Like you would think... Must be Betty's cooking again. Good you know how God. she gets with the spices. What the... People, get your fucking life together. So Nilsson had said that at this point, the bodies were covered in maggots. Um, he apparently would spray like deodorants down into underneath the floorboards to try and cover up the smell. He also sprayed insecticides to try and get rid of the magnet maggots, but uh, he couldn't get rid of the smell, and I guess he couldn't get rid of the flies either. Oh, really? You don't say, Denny. So must have not done your decomp research, <laughs> fucking asshole. So in late 1980, Nilsson decides to remove the six bodies uh, that were beneath his floorboards. Jesus he wait what was the what was the year of the first victim 1978 okay hold the motherfucking phone yeah 78 so first victim in 1978 we're now in 1980 we're at the end of 1980 yeah so almost three years and it's just now you know what denny you you might want to you might have a Something going on. This is, you've got to be shitting. It's just now, some, oh my God. So he, he takes the six bodies out from under the floorboards. He dismembers them, chops them up, um, and he burns them on a bonfire in the backyard. He's smart enough to put a tire on the bonfire because the, the smell of the burning rubber covers up the smell of the burning flesh. Nobody would have fucking noticed. There's been 12 bodies in your fucking floorboard like your fucking Edgar Allan Poe well, for for. 17 years and nobody has said I think you're free and clear to just burn them motherfuckers. So here's the fucked up part though about this bonfire. So three neighborhood children see that this bonfire is going on. Don't start. They show up and begin to play and dance around the bonfire. They don't know what the fuck's going on. They just think cool there's a big bonfire. So they show up. He lets them play and dance around this bonfire and he later says quote here's some marshmallows. Everything seemed in order seeing these three children dance around a mass funeral fire, end quote. So he got some pleasure. He's staying in there. He knows his fucking body's burning, and these little kids are dancing around, and he's almost getting aroused from this, that these children, it's like to him they're celebrating that he's having this funeral of sorts. I mean, the pungent smell of a, of a dead body is not something that one will ever forget or when you smell it not know what it is right so if you haven't smelled it trust me if you do you'd know what it is Exa yes it's so it i can't cannot, be mistaken no, for anything else. and i cannot imagine five bodies and six is, is, is six bodies is this fucking dude just like throwing these fucking dead bodies over his shoulder and just carrying them down and everyone's like hey denny well no you, he, new carpet he chopped them up in his apartment he dismembered them and chopped them up into pieces. Still, are you walking out with a kneecap and nobody notices? Like, what the... F right. Oh, my God. I need to... Woof. So after the fire was down to nothing but ashes, Nilsson then rakes through it to make sure that there are no recognizable bones. So he's pretty good at covering his tracks here. He said that one of the skulls remained intact, so he smashed it with his garden rake. Jesus Christ. Good grief, Denny. Get it together, man. Get it together. I'm going to be honest. I feel like if we do have any fans in the UK, I would really love to kind of hear more about this because yeah. I'm. we don't hear a lot of serial killers 
you know, worldwide. But I imagine that this would be like a Ted Bundy or like a Jeffrey Dahmer here where, you know, you guys probably know the story. I'm, I am really curious as to what kind of coverage this got and, and maybe you guys can fill in some of the blanks because some of this just seems so confusing to me. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Definitely. Okay. So we get to January, 1981, January 4th. Nilsson runs into an unidentified man whom he described for investigators as an 18-year-old blue-eyed young Scott. He runs into this guy at the Golden Lion Pub. He was lured to Melrose Avenue upon the promise of partaking in a drinking contest. So he basically tells this kid, hey, let's right. It's my let's kind go. of party. Right? Um, after Nilsson and his victim had consumed several beverages, Nilsson strangled him with a tie. Seems to be his go-to thing. Okay. And subsequently placed the body beneath the floorboards. Oh, of course. Because that didn't go sour literal and figuratively last time. Right, right. Nilsson then calls his employers, tells them that he's ill and unable to attend work on January 12th. And he does this so he could dissect both his victims. Um, basically, this guy and another unidentified, unidentified victim that he had killed approximately a month earlier. I guess my question is... is First of all, what kind of house do you live in where you can rip up the floorboard? I mean, is he like on the bottom floor? Yeah, he's on oh, the ground floor okay. of this building. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so by April of 81, Nilsson kills two more unidentified victims. Good Lord. Uh, one of whom he describes as an English skinhead. The other one he describes as a Belfast boy. Okay. Uh, basically a man in his early 20s. Um, after talking about killing these two men, Nilsson said, quote, End of the day, end of the drink, end of a person. Floorboards back, carpet replaced, and back to work at Denmark Street. Oh. So he's very nonchalant yeah. about this. And we'll talk about this more when we're talking about like his interviews with police. He is very calm, cool, collected, and matter of fact. New Green River. Yeah, Not right? Green River, yeah. Gary Ridgeway. The final victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue location Ooh. is a 23-year-old named Malcolm Barlow. Outside of Saks Fifth Avenue? Close. Oh, okay. Nilsson found Barlow slumped against a wall outside of his home on September 17th, 1981. This is a complete and utter case of wrong place, wrong time. Yes. And, well, this guy had some chances here because when Nilsson asked if Barlow was okay, Barlow tells him that the medication that he takes for seizures causes his legs to weaken. Oh, great. So when I read this part, I thought, oh, God, Nilsson's going... Bingo. Like, he's already halfway incapacitated. Right. And he's right outside my front doorstep. And this is what he's been dreaming of his whole life. Right. Perfect fucking victim, right? Instead of doing what we think he's going to do, Nilsson calls an ambulance for him. He walks him inside to his home, phones an ambulance, and loads his ass on an ambulance to the hospital. He ends up helping this guy out. What? Okay. Stop it. No, no foul play. Literally called this fucking dude an ambulance when he had like the perfect victim and let him go to the hospital maybe he's he's also into the the getting it you know just as much as he is the act well so he's kind of like oh he's an he's an injured you know an injured fawn i don't want to you know kick him while he's down well unfortunately for this guy barlow the oh, next day back. well he's released from the hospital and he returns to nelson's home to thank him oh okay Big mistake. He's invited inside, and after eating a meal, he began drinking rum and coke with Nilsson before falling asleep on his sofa. Oh, well, you're, you're a goner. Denny's gotcha. Yeah. So uh, Denny manually strangles Barlow as he sleeps before stowing his body beneath his kitchen sink. 
Oh, so we've no. moved we've moved from the floorboards to the kitchen, which I think he's out of room under the floorboards. How fucking I mean this must have been a small man to fit under. I, I couldn't get you under a kitchen sink no matter how hard I tried. Right. <laughs> right. Hey, what are you saying? I'm saying that you're six foot four okay. and Thank you. you're not gonna fit under a kitchen sink. Thanks for not mentioning the weight first. You're not you don't have I, weight issues. I know, I'm just kidding. So here's a big uh-oh moment for Nelson. In mid-1981, his landlord contacts him and tells him he wants to renovate 195 Melrose Avenue. Er-er, Denny. So he asked Nelson to vacate the property. And obviously, Nelson's like, I ain't going nowhere. Not Fuck. today. Uh, but his landlord ends up offering $1,000 to move. I'll give you $1,000 if you move. So Nelson's like, cool, I'll take it. He moves out. Um, of course, after having another bonfire to get rid of what he's got there. And Did he, Ted and Jane from down the street come and fucking dance around this yeah, bitch again? Yeah, probably. He ends up moving into an attic flat at 23 Cranley Gardens. This okay. is his... An attic? So basically somebody pulled the, pulled the door down from the ceiling with the rickety ladder and said, there you go, bro. Yeah. Well, and we got a note here too. He's going from the bottom floor to being up on the top floor. Okay, now. I'm going to be honest. The reason for my asking that initial question about where does he live, because I'm like, is there no seepage coming? Like, what are we, like, somebody's got to go, um, looks like we might have a leak and it's not water. Yeah, no, he's on the ground floor at Melrose Avenue, but oh. now he's in the attic oh, space. Well, the top floor, we'll call it. Come on, Denny, you're smarter than that. So the day before he vacates the Melrose Avenue property, Nelson burned the dissected bodies of his last five victims. Um, the last five he'd killed there, anyway. Um, this is the third and final bonfire at Melrose. Um, and again, he ensured the bonfire had the old tire on it to disguise the smell. Um, and yeah, so he, he gets rid of all the evidence he had at Melrose and moves into this Cranley Gardens place. And they're going to renovate all the, the, the evidence that's left. R right. And don't you think the landlord would have walked in and been like... Jeez, oh, Pete, it smells like fucking 30-day-old garbage in here. Right. Oh my, that's probably why he's renovating. Right, He's probably. thinking that there's, like, <laughs> some fucking dead, like rotting animal. Ugh. Oh, my word. So once at Cranley Gardens, Nilsson has no access to a garden either. There's not that backyard like he had on Melrose Avenue. And because he re resided in the attic flat, he's unable to stow bodies beneath the floorboards. So he's... He's kind of out of luck right now trying to figure out what the fuck to do because for almost two months, he's at this new address. Um, anybody that he meets um, or lures to his flat, no one gets assaulted in any way. So he's still bringing people back. He's still drinking, listening to music, having some fun. But the first two months in this new place, nobody gets even a heavy hand placed on them. Although he did attempt to strangle a 19-year-old student named Paul Nobbs on November 23rd, 81, but he stopped himself from completing the act. And I think what he's going through here is he wants to do it. But he wants he to fucking yeah. kill somebody, but I think in the back of his head, you know, his usual routine of yeah. what he does is unavailable. You know, he's got, he can't put him in the floor. There's no fucking place to burn him. He, right. I think he's got that going on. Well, what am I going to do with him, right. basically? In March 1982, Nelson runs into a 23-year-old named John Howlett while, can we guess, drinking in a pub. Of oh, course. Okay. How I, I have heard that um, 
Brits do love pubs. They do. I actually like pubs as well. I do too. We should have more pubs here. We don't. We should. Like actual pubs, not like let's go dance and on a bar and <laughs> you know, we don't have actual pubs. We just have bars. So again, uh, he lures his victim, Howlett, to his flat with the promise of continued drinking. Um, they both drink. They watch a film. Howlett falls asleep. Common mistake amongst all the, the victims here. An hour later, Nilsson tries to wake Howlett up, but he won't wake up. So he sits on the edge of the bed drinking rum as he stares at Howlett. And it takes him about an hour to decide to kill him. So he's finally going to do it in this new place. But this is this is a big struggle. This guy apparently was a was a kind of bigger, more muscular guy. So uh, Howlett himself ends up strangling Nilsson. So they're both trying to strangle each other out, like who can make the oh. first one pass out to get away, kind of thing. Do it. Um, but eventually, Nilsson gets his hold on an upholstery strap. You know, he likes those neckties and upholstery straps. Um, and he's able to strangle Howlett into unconsciousness. So he finally overpowers this dude. Damn it. Um, on three occasions over the next 10 minutes, uh, Howlett regains consciousness and has to be strangled back into unconsciousness. Holy shit. So he's still kind of fighting. Um, Nilsson unsuccessfully kill, attempts to kill his victim after he resumed breathing. And as he's doing this, like, 10 minutes of back and forth where this guy kind of wakes up and he's got to choke him back out, he's filling his bathtub up because oh, he knows he needs, he's got to drown him, right? So he finally gets the bathtub filled up. He finally gets Howlett unconscious. He's able to drag him into the bathroom, and he drowns him in his bathtub. However, for the next week, uh, Nilsson said that his own neck had strangulation bruises from Howlett's fingers. So he's kind of walking around trying to cover up that he's got all these bruises on his neck. Is he wearing a scarf? <laughs> he might have been. In May of 82, Nilsson runs into 21-year-old Carl Stodder at the Black Cap Pub there in London. We need to go to London. Stodder was there and upset and drinking because of a breakup. Um, and basically, Nilsson talked Stodder into going back to his flat with him. At the flat, Stodder drank more alcohol before falling asleep. He later awoke to find himself being strangled by Nilsson. And I guess Nilsson was loudly whispering. I don't know how you loudly whisper. Stay still. Ugh. Stay still. What and a fucking creep. But Stoddard survives. Because in a subsequent testimony at Nilsson's trial, Stoddard recalled hearing water running before realizing he was immersed in the water and that Nilsson was attempting to drown him. God, is he beat? He's like five serial killers in one person. Right. He's like Ridgeway, Dahmer. He's just like, oh my. And now we're getting to BTK where he's, no, not even BTK. The uh, Golden State Killer. Yeah. Where he's whispering, being a fucking weirdo. <laughs> right. Jeez, oh, Pete. Uh, so basically, Stoddard remembers going in and out of, con he wakes up, he's being strangled. He kind of goes unconscious again. Then he wakes up and he's in a fucking bathtub being held underwater and he's like gasping for Can air. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? Yes. I, I mean, I just would want, just get it over with the first try. I don't want to do this like waking up in terror you know, like, am I, was I dreaming? Am I really in this? You know, I mean, right. oh my gosh. So we get to the point though, where Nilsson believes he's killed Stoddard. He thinks the guy's dead. So he pulls him out of the bathtub and he sits him up in his armchair. Cause that's, you know what he does. He likes to pose these bodies. 
But then he realizes that Stoddard's still breathing. And for whatever weird fucking reason, he goes over and he comforts Stoddard and he rubs his limbs and on his heart and kind of, um, he covers him in blankets and he lays him on his bed and he, he's like almost trying to revive him. And when Stoddard regains consciousness, Nilsson hugs him and explains to him that he had almost strangled himself in the strings of the sleeping bag he was sleeping in. Yeah, because everyone fucking believes that, Denny. And and that Nilsson had resuscitated him and saved him. So I'm kind of thinking what's going on here is in whatever moment that was after the drowning and then realizing he's he didn't drown, he's still alive. I think he saw an opportunity here to he wanted to keep a live person. He's going back to that wanting to be in a relationship. So he's he's quickly decide he comes up with this plot of like maybe if I tell you you almost died and I saved your life, you'll love me and want to stay with me and be my partner. I think that's kind of what's going on. Yeah, here. because the last 45 minutes were just you're a fucking idiot, Denny. <laughs> you are a fucking idiot. That Hey, I almost beat you to death with a club, but you're still alive. I saved you. Yeah, it's it's messed up. And and basically... And now he has Munchausen syndrome. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Um, but, you know, Stoddard, you know, asks him about the water. He wants to know why, he, you know, why did you put... Why was I in the bathtub being held underwater? And Nilsson kind of explains this away as, well, you were in shock from this choking incident. I was trying to, like, bring you out of this Have you ever shock. had a sleeping bag attack you and almost... And have you almost I, been... No, I have not. I have. It's terrifying. Oh, have you really? Uh, totally. I mean... Remember that one time when I had a sleeping bag and all of a sudden out of nowhere, like we were just camping and I woke up and I'm like, oh, did you see that sleeping bag? You got me on that one because I actually thought you were going to tell a Fuck fucking story no. where you got strangled in a no, sleeping bag. Like who fucking believes that? I don't. Well, Stoddard didn't because he was like, I, I'm I'm going home. I'm, I don't want anything to do with did you. Did you see the neighbor break in and almost try to strangle? Where, where's your strangling? No, no, no. It was just you. <laughs> I just sat here. I was pure terrified. Yeah. So Nelson drives him uh, to the nearby railway station. And uh, he said that he told him that he hoped that they would meet again. And he said goodbye. And he, and he let this guy. I am. I'm not. I am confused. I am too. I, I am so confused because it's not compassion. I think it's definitely what you're saying. I really think that he, it, he, I, I don't even want to say that the human kind of comes back because I don't think it's it's anything but pure selfishness. Yeah. I think like you said, it's the wanting to care for somebody and but in a very like twisted, manipulated, very selfish kind of way. Like I'm I mean, you don't normally with serial killers see like any type of compassion or kind of I don't it, this is a very odd yeah. And can, can you imagine being the Stodder guy? And like, you know, obviously this is a fucked up situation right. individually just for him. But then like later, what, you know, because obviously the police end up tracking him down because he ends up testifying at the trial. But like how fucking lucky this guy probably feels yeah. knowing all the other shit that has happened and is going to happen still. I mean, he literally was would have probably done or said anything just to get out of there. 
Yeah. Like, you know, hey, I'm HIV positive. Do you care? Nope, don't care. Just want to get the fuck up out of here. Like, I mean, literally this guy would have, would have, they would have been like, hey, um, will you sell your mom? Sure, five cents, dude. Really? What, right. You can have her for free. Right. Like, can you imagine that being like able to be calm enough to not, I mean, be in sheer panic, like flight, fight or flight, you know, I just... I mean, good on him for being able to kind of keep it together just to get himself fucking out of there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So in September of 82, Nilsson meets a 27-year-old named Graham Allen. Uh, Nilsson invites Allen back to his flat for a meal. And while Allen is eating an omelet, Nilsson strangles him from behind. Allen's body was kept (laughs) in the bathtub for three days before Uh, Nilsson began the task of dismembering his body on the kitchen floor. You couldn't even let the dude finish his fucking omelet. I know, right? You insensitive prick. And then on January 26, 1983, Nilsson finds and kills his final victim, a 20-year-old named Stephen Sinclair. Uh, basically, his friends, Stephen's friends, said the last time they saw him, he was walking towards a, a train station with Nilsson. They were talking. and uh, Once at Nilsson's flat, Sinclair fell asleep in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor as Nilsson sat listening to the rock opera, Tommy. Oh, my. Oh, so he, he listens to opera and classical. Oh, we. Yeah. So Nilsson, I guess, gets up and approaches Sinclair, kneels down in front of him, and says, quote, Oh, Stephen, here I go again. Oh, my God. So we'll get into the details of the final murder and the rest of this story, including how good old Denny was captured. Uh, right after this quick break. All right, well, we're back, and we are talking about 20-year-old Stephen St. Clair, who is Nilsson's final victim. Gross. Yes, so after he kills Sinclair, he follows his usual ritual of bathing the body in the bathtub. Nilsson then lays Sinclair's body on his bed, applies talcum powder to the body. Oh, well, he's got some compensation coming. Yeah, then he arranges three mirrors around the bed uh, before oh, shit. before he lies down naked alongside Sinclair's body. This guy is a real fucking nutbag. So he lays there for a couple of hours. A couple hours? Yeah, he just lays with Stephen's body. Um, oh, God. And then apparently he turns Stephen's head towards him, kisses him on the forehead, and says, Good night, Stephen. This guy is... Yeah. Yeah. Good night. Fucking four hours ago. (laughs) Good old Denny here then falls asleep right alongside the body and and sleeps through the night. Oh, best sleep he's ever had, I bet. Um, As had been the case with both Howlett and Allen, Sinclair's body was subsequently dissected with various uh, dismembered parts wrapped in plastic bags and stored in either a wardrobe or a tea chest uh, or within a drawer located beneath the bathtub. So underneath the sink. Sort of, yeah. So, uh, Nilsson then attempts to dispose of the flesh, uh, the internal organs, and uh, what he deems to be small enough bones mm. of the last three victims he killed at uh, Cranley Gardens by flushing the remains down his toilet. So, what what can, what do you consider small bones from a, a full a full grown man human? I'm thinking maybe like hand bones, foot bones, all the little. The little bones in your body. I don't know. Which are still big. 
Yeah, which I don't think would flush down a toilet, but apparently that's... They must have some kind of plumbing. Well, remember now he doesn't have, uh, you know, the last at Melrose, he had this garden with the fire pit. So it was really easy and he was on the first floor. So he could just walk out back, dispose of his shit. Now he's up in that attic. So he's like, what do I do with these bodies that are starting to smell? Well, I'm going to try to flush most of them down the toilet. And clearly nobody at this address has any sense of smell either. Yeah. I I just... (laughs) Yes. I cannot imagine, like, what kind of neighborhood is this that you live in and everyone's like, ah, smells like home. Yeah, well, yeah nothing out of the ordinary. What the fuck? Well, and also, um, like he did with several of the victims at Melrose Avenue, he also boils their heads on the stove. God. Um, sorry, he boils their heads, hands, and feet. Oh, okay. Yes, to remove okay. the flesh off these sections of the victim's bodies. What? Oh, God. So... This is where Nilsson, I think, I don't know if he's just, I don't think he's dumb, but I think he gets a little bold here and maybe isn't thinking quite clearly because on... Oh, you don't think he's thinking quite clearly, (laughs) huh? Yes. On February 4th, 1983, Nilsson writes a complaint to his landlord complaining that the drains at Cranley Gardens are blocked. Wait, Hank, wait. The drains that he's been stuffing small bones and flesh? Right. What a... This guy. I wonder what they're blocked with. I have no clue. Can you imagine what the... It must be that neighbor downstairs, man. I know she's flushing all kinds of shit down her toilet. Right. Literally. So uh, we get to when Nilsson's murders are finally discovered by somebody. Um, And this is a Dino Rod employee. uh, Dino Rod being a plumbing company. Um, This gentleman's name is Michael Catran. So he's the one who responds to the plumbing complaints made by both Nilsson and some other tenants there at 23 Cranley Gardens. So he opens a drain cover at the side of the house. Catran discovered that the drain was packed with a flesh-like substance and numerous small bones. Oh, my God. So Catran reports this to his supervisor named Gary Wheeler. Um, And since Catran had arrived at the property at dusk to take care of this, him and Wheeler agree that they're going to hold off until morning, basically come back when they got some better light to see what this blockage is all about. Okay. However, prior to leaving the property, Nilsson and a fellow tenant named Jim Alcock speak with Catran. Like, hey, bud, what are you doing? Yeah, Catran kind of screws up here, but he doesn't know what the fuck's going on. So they're like, hey, what's, you know, what's plugging up the drains? And... Contran tells them, like, well, this stuff kind of looks similar to, like, human flesh and bones. So I'm kind of freaked out. Yeah, now Denny's freaked out, too. Yeah, Denny's, at this point, is like, ah, oh, fuck. So <laughs> Nelson I says... I mean, what kind of fucking asshole tells... This is, like, this isn't just, hey, um, my bad. I put down some rags, and they kind of... And, you know, I might have blocked the drain... You are stuffing human remains down your toilet and then call to say, by some miracle of God, the the drains are clogged. Yeah. Well, no shit. So, Nilsson, you know, upon Katran saying this, like, it looks like human body parts in the drain. Nilsson's got to cover his tracks. So, apparently, he pipes up and says, well, it looks to me like someone's been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> I mean, I good for thinking on your feet, I guess, because I guess it could be confused. Like, that's chicken bones and chicken. But where's the flesh coming from? Right. Are, are, are you guys made? Are you, is there your KFC way different than our KFC? Yeah, maybe they do the baked thing. I don't know. So at 730 a.m. the next morning, Katrina and Wheeler return to 23 Cranley Gardens. 
And guess what? The drain has been cleared. Oh my God. <laughs> no longer is the flesh and bone in the drain and uh, miraculously it's been cleared up and there's nothing there. So this obviously, you know, like the suspicions of these two are like, what the fuck, you know, and they know they talk to like two of the tenants. And so, um, so basically they start investigating further and they start looking up some of these pipelines that go into this building and Katrayan discovers some scraps of flesh and four bones in a pipe that leads directly to the top flat in the house. Dennis. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, Denny's flat there. So so Tran now has pinpointed where this shit has been coming from. And by shit, we mean pe- people. Humans, yes. Um, and he, uh, to him, to both Katran and Wheeler, the bones that they find look as if they have come from a human hand. Like, to them, they're like, these look like finger bones or, or something like that. How the fuck do they know? I don't even know what, what human bones look like. R- yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't be like... Ooh, that looks like a quad, right? Which isn't even a bone; it's a fucking muscle. It's exactly. <laughs> like, are they are they like also doubling as like the me? Right. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you know. Maybe this is a retired doctor who decided his dream job was <laughs> be a plumber. plumber. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so both men immediately call the police, who, upon closer inspection, discovered further small bones and scraps of what looked like, to the naked eye anyway, either human or animal flesh. Well, clearly, I believe that from them. Okay, yeah. they're detectives. Probably have seen this shit. What plumber knows what? Fu- <laughs> right. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, uh, maybe they find this shit all the time in the drains. We don't know. Oh, jeez, you guys better get it together. So the police take the remains that they were able to find um, to the mortuary at Hornsey, and this is where pathologist professor David Bowen takes a look at them, and he tells the police that these are in fact human. Yeah, because he clearly fucking knows. That's what he went to school for. Yeah, and he... Uh, well, I mean, right on to the plumbers. I mean, they I called mean, yeah, it right, I'm, you know. Yeah, but still, I'm just kind of curious of what their background was. So, interestingly, he also tells police that one particular piece of flesh uh, was from a human neck and that it also had ligature marks on it. So, he was able to identify, like, hey, this big kind of scrap this is a neck and there's some you know like strangulation markings on this piece of flesh oh my gosh so uh um, upon learning that the top floor flat from where the human remains had been flushed belonged to nilson detective chief inspector peter J and two of his uh colleagues other police officers and detectives they wait outside the house until nilson returns home from work and when he returns home jay walks up he introduces himself as being you know a detective um, and he explains that they had come to inquire about the blockage in the drains from his flat. So Nilsson immediately asked them why the police were so interested in his drains. And then he also asked if the other two officers that were there were health inspectors. It's, it seems to me like he's just kind of like back backtracking, trying to cover it up now because he made a fucking stupid ass decision to complain about the drains being clogged when clearly he could have cleared them himself yeah, if he was Denny, able to do them under, overnight. This is on you, bro. Yeah. Um, so, of course, they're like, no, we're not health inspectors. But, you know, hey, let's go up to your flat, your apartment, and discuss things further. So the three officers follow Nilsson upstairs. Um, they immediately noted that there was the odor of rotting flesh coming from inside the apartment. Jesus, somebody, right. thank you. <laughs> Finally. Uh, Nilsson, again, he's getting nervous now, and he's asking why the police are so interested in his drains. And it's at that time when they've got him cornered in his 
apartment that they say because we know that the blockage was human remains and Nilsson acts shocked he's he acts mortified at this idea and he says quote good grief how awful um and you know he's kind of playing them obviously and at which point the chief inspector here says to the says to Nilsson hey quit messing about where's the rest where's the rest of the fucking body man you know like we've got you where's the body um at this point, Nilsson calms down. Yeah, I think he's a little bit defeated at this point, realizes he's got no excuses or anywhere to go. Um, and his response to that was uh, admitting that the rest of the body could be found in two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe. Um, and then they asked him if there were any other body parts around the apartment. And his response to that was, quote, it's a long story and it goes back a long time. I'll tell so, you everything. I want to get it off my chest just not here at the police station. So, by the way, just for anybody listening, the detectives did not find Narnia when they opened the wardrobe. (laughs) Clearly, there was some other... They found two plastic bags full of human goop, basically. I mean, I can smell it from here. Okay, Like, how is it... I need to speak to... I would like to interview these neighbors. Yeah. Clearly, somebody... what? Yeah. So it takes this man telling, not even getting caught, not even like somebody was like, something's not right. It takes this jackass telling on himself. Right. To get caught. Yeah. What a dipshit. Not shit. the numerous other people living in the same building. At yeah. two separate residences. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so obviously at that point, police arrest Nilsson um, on suspicion of murder and they take him to the Hornsey police station. As he's being escorted to the police station, Nilsson was asked whether the remains in his flat belonged to one person or two. No, 76. And apparently he was staring out the window, watching the scenery go by as they drove to the police station, and he replied, quote, 15 or 16 since 1978, end quote. Jeez, and they're probably like, oh, okay, I was thinking, no, literally, we thought like two, what, wait. We weren't, we were not, hey, we didn't sign up for the rest of this. Right. Is that in our jurisdiction? Do we have to worry about the other address or can hey, we make them? Can you call the other inspector? <laughs> See if they'll take this off our hands. Uh, so that evening, um, a detective superintendent named Chambers, along with Jay and Professor Bowen, they go to Cranley Gardens uh, where they find the plastic bags. They remove them from the wardrobe. They take them to the mortuary. Uh, One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been vertically dissected, and a shopping bag containing various internal organs. Was it a Von Marr bag? (laughs) You never, I mean, a shopping bag from somewhere. Well, hopefully it was just at least of a a more expensive brand. Classy place. Was it a Fendi bag? (laughs) Oh, my God. The second bag they find in the wardrobe contains a human skull, which was... Uh, apparently had already been boiled because it didn't have any flesh on it. Another severed head and a torso with arms attached, but hands missing. Oh, cute. Way to go, Denny. So Dick. in an interview conducted on February 10th, Nilsson confessed there were further human remains stowed in a tea chest in his living room with other remains inside an upturned drawer in his bathroom. The dismembered body parts were the bodies of three men, all of whom he had killed by strangulation, usually with a necktie. One victim he could not name, another he knew only as, quote, John the Guardsman, end quote, and the third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. He also stated that beginning in December 1978, he had killed 12 or 13 other men at his former address, 195 Melrose Avenue. 
Nilsson also admitted to having unsuccessfully attempted to kill approximately seven other people who um, they either escaped, you know, got away, um, or on one occasion um, they'd been on the brink of death but had been revived and allowed to leave his residence. He's such a sweet man. A further search for additional remains at 23 Cranley Gardens on February 10th revealed the lower section of a torso and two legs stowed in a bag in the bathroom. Wait, those were missed the first time? I, I know. I don't... I. And I've looked through several different like sources in here, and it seems to me that, yes, they searched at once and pretty much only looked where he told them. the. What the, kind of fucking operation yeah. is this? And they had to go back, and then they did a more thorough search, and they find a shit ton more. Hey, inspectors, get up on your shit. <laughs> what the? Wait a minute. Hey, um, if you guys could just look in the sink and in the microwave. Hey. Don't you dare well, look anywhere else. He's a good bloke. He's probably telling us the truth. What the? That's this kind of. This We've is got f- no reason to believe Jesus. he's lying. This um, is ridiculous. So on the second search, they find, you know, this torso. They find legs. They find another skull. They find another section of a torso. They find bones. All of that in the tea chest. Um, and then that same day, Nilsson also accompanies the police back to the Melrose Avenue address and it's there where he indicates the three locations in the rear garden where he had had bonfires and burned remains. Um, and just a side note here, the investigators comb through those fire pits and they find over 1,000 fragments of human bone in the garden of Melrose Avenue. Still sitting there after this man has been long since moved out? Well, I, I think they're very small. It's uh, blackened and charred little fragments that... God, I hope nobody's grown anything in this garden. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Holy shit. You're a cannibal and you don't even know it. (laughs) So, uh, side note here, under English law, the police have 48 hours in which to charge Nilsson or release him. So, I mean, I would say at this point they have enough. He's Uh, already admitted to it. Yes. I mean, it's like... But at this point, they kind of don't know for sure who the victims are. He knows, he tells them one name... Um, but I, I don't know if it's like a requirement over there, but basically they're in this race to figure out at least one of the victims so they can keep him locked up. So like, do they have like Miranda laws over there and stuff? Like, I don't know what they have. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just curious as to like why a man told you to look for body parts in two spots of the house, but yet nobody thought to look in the rest of the residence. Yeah. Well, luckily for police, uh, professor Bowen, he was able to find a piece of a finger. This is like hot fuzz. And fi- <laughs> Except that movie's fucking hilarious. Yes. This is not. This is not funny at all. Uh, Bowen finds a piece of a finger, which he's able to pull a fingerprint off of and identifies that piece as belonging to Sinclair. Way to go, Dr. Bowen. Yes. So uh, at 5.40 p.m. on February 11th, Nilsson is formally charged with Sinclair's murder. DB for the win. They um, Police interview Nilsson on 16 separate occasions over the following days and interviews which total over 30 hours. Because I apparently bet you he just wouldn't shut the fuck up. He wouldn't shut the fuck up. He wanted to oh, tell him yeah, he's every this. detail. Okay. Um, Nilsson was adamant that he has no fucking idea why he killed he said, when they ask him, why did you do all this? He says, I don't know, but quote, I'm hoping you will tell me that, end quote. So wait, I don't know if wait, he was wait, out wait. of control. Team timeout. What? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you can. T- Motherfucker, do I look like your brain? <laughs> uh, I mean, 
as far as everything else is going, they may also be psychiatrists trained in the human mind. Yeah. As far, I mean, we had plumbers that were like finding and knowing, I mean, geez, oh, Pete. When asked about his motive for the murders, he was adamant that the decision to kill was not made until moments before the act of murder. Like, so he's trying to say, I didn't go out hunting. I just found myself in these situations and right in that moment thought, that's eh, a good time. But, but the, every time he went out to the bar, he brought someone home. So that, yeah, you did. You did go hunting. You went to the bars and every time you went to the bar, you brought someone home to kill. Yeah. So, uh, no. Yeah. So um, he does admit though, because he's singing like a bird that um, he would strangle the victims with a tie. Um, sometimes until death, sometimes until unconsciousness. If they were just unconscious from this, he would drag them to some source of water, whether it was the sink or the bathtub, and then drown them. Um, and once the victim had been killed, he typically would bathe the victim's body and often get in the tub as well and Ugh. bathe with them. Um, he would shave any hair from the torso to conform to his physical ideal, which apparently is a hairless male. Um, he then would apply makeup. Do you honestly, do you think he's sitting there talking to them as if they are? I think so, yes. I think so. You know, like, hey, I, oh, I didn't mean to, didn't mean to chip you there. Sorry about that. Yeah, well. Like, what are you doing, man? We know one victim, he sat in a chair in his living room and would watch television and convert, you know, converse, if you can use that term, with the body about what the show was about. Like, this hey, guy. did you like that scene? Did you, what do you think, you know? Uh, yeah, I don't know. This is cuckoo. So he would apply makeup to any blemishes that oh, the person had on the skin. God, how dare you have a zit. He wanted their skin to be perfect. Um, he would then usually dress the body in nothing but socks and underpants. Apparently this is what he's into. Um, he then would um, hang out with the corpse. Like I was saying, whether they were laying in bed with him or he'd prop them up in a chair um, he'd hang out with them for a little bit as if they were a boyfriend. If this was a movie, this would be a B film. Yeah, it would have to be. I mean, this is it you're would. a B. This 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 story sucks that bad. I mean, I don't know how you would make a movie like it'd have to be at least NC seventeen or something. Because how would you be able to portray any of this? And how would anybody watch this and not go, "Ooh, yeah, uh, this guy's fucked up." So with most victims, Nilsson admitted that he would masturbate as he stood alongside or knelt above the body. Oh, okay. Um, and he also confessed to having occasionally engaged in intercrural sex with oh, his victims' what bodies. What the fuck is that? So I had, there's another one I had to Wikipedia because oh, I've never heard of that term either. Fantastic. So here's... Hold on. Here we go, everybody. This is, <laughs> this is probably going to get even weirder than it fucking was. So here's the definition of intercrural sex. Is also known as femoral or interfemoral sex, which is a type of non-penetrative sex oh, where the shit. penis is placed between between the receiving partner's thighs and thrust back and forth to create friction. So he's repeatedly stressing to investigators <sighs> that he never actually had sex. He never penetrated any of his victims, but he did have this. No, sex and if with you had, thighs. it would not. It, you would not have been able to make it weirder than you just have. Yeah, like now this is a this. What in the... Oh, my. Yeah. And he, and he, I guess he told... This is what he told investigators about this. He said, quote, they were too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex. End quote. You're, you're speechless. 
I don't. I really don't know what's happening here. Apparently, he thought sex was very dirty, so he's saying that this is an elevated form of sex where it's not, you know, just commonplace. This is a listen, Denny. Form. You are elevated in every sense of the word. Like, <laughs> we don't need you to get any more elevated than you already are. Yeah. What in the fuck? Listen, people. This is not. Don't do this. In several instances, Nilsson talked to the victim's bodies as it remained seated in a chair or prone out on his bed. Oh, okay. Here we go. He recalled being emotional as he marveled at the beauty of their bodies. With reference to one victim, Kenneth Ockenden, Nilsson noted that Ockenden's body and skin were very beautiful, adding that, quote, the sight of it almost brought me to tears. Yeah, that purple like blood pool look must have just really been in then i guess what the fuck well and he definitely has a type because another unidentified victim had been apparently so emaciated and skinny that he simply after the murder he simply just discarded him under the floorboards he didn't interact with it at all it just wasn't his type so so then why kill him yeah i don't then what the fuck is the point i don't just be like hey man here's a cheeseburger have a good light like what are we doing yeah uh, Make it a double, whatever. The bodies of the victims killed at his previous address on Melrose were kept for as long as decomposition would allow. Um, and then upon uh, noticing any signs of decomposition, Nilsson would stow it beneath the floorboards. So he would keep these bodies out in his living space, basically until they started to show rot, I guess, or you know whatever happens to the skin as they start to decompose. That's the point he would put them under the floorboards. If the body didn't display any signs of decomposition, he occasionally alternated alternated bodies. So he would put them under the floorboards and then like trade them out. Like if another one down there still looked good, he'd bring that one out for a while. Like, oh, I remember you. And then as that one would start to de- decompose, he'd put it back under the floorboards. And then, oh, this, this one isn't too bad. He'd bring that one back out. This is straight fuckery. I don't, I am so, oh my word. Oh, 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 hang on. I think we got another day here. All right, let's go. Let's get you out. Let's get you up here. What are we doing? Yeah. Um, When the police questioned him as to why the heads at Cranley Gardens, um, he had boiled on the stove. When they they asked him why he did that, um, he said that he frequently boiled the heads of his victims in a large cooking pot um, so that the internal contents, i.e. the brain, would evaporate. So that would... Basically, he no longer needed to dispose of the head. It wouldn't start decomposing or smelling because he'd basically be left with a skull, like Dude, a trinket. What do you care about the smell at this point? Like, what, what do you care about the smell for? Clearly, you are very familiar and okay with the smell of rot and putrefaction. Yeah. Like, yeah. if if there was a candle that they wanted to make of those, they would ask Denny. Right. Uh, when police questioned him as to whether or not he had any remorse for his crimes, oh, what do you think he said? No. His, uh, he's quoted as saying, I wished I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness. End quote. Boo hoo. Get a fucking hobby, dude. He also emphasized he took no pleasure from the act of killing. It's, he did not like the actual act of killing, but, quote, worshipped the art and the act of death, end quote. What's the fucking difference? Is this the Undertaker? What the fuck? (laughs) Right. 
Oh man. So go to go get a job at a fucking funeral home. Like if if you just want to make everything all pretty and prop like what dude, there are legal ways to do that. Right. Right. What are we doing here? Yeah. So on October 24th, 1983, Nilsson is brought to trial. He is charged with six counts of murder and two of attempted murder. Um, he's tried before Mr. Justice Croom Johnson. And the trial begins with Nilsson being asked by the chief administrator of the court whether he entered a plea of guilty or not guilty in relation to each charge. In response to each charge? Not guilty. Yes. What a dipshit. Nilsson enters a plea of not guilty. Um, and upon completion of his pleas, the jury is sworn into the courtroom. So basically, uh, the trial begins and, and the primary thing, but the primary argument between the prosecution and defense isn't whether or not he did the murders. There's no argument to that. The, even the defense is saying, yes, he did these murders. He's admitting to them. But basically, they're arguing back and forth about whether or not it was premeditated and whether or not he was fully sane um, when this stuff happened. Oh, no, he's sane. And yes, it was premeditated. This man knew ex enough to know that, hey, you know, I, I, what I did was wrong, you know, and I shouldn't have done it. I just couldn't stop. No, he was yeah. sane. Yeah. I mean, none, none of these people we talk about are, are completely sane, yeah. but they certainly know right from wrong. Yeah. So uh, you've got the prosecutor named Alan Green. He's obviously arguing that he's sane and in full control of his actions. Um, and he's even saying he, um, that he killed with premeditation. He's saying that he yeah. would get in the mood. He would go out to these bars right. looking for these guys. This is all a premeditated Absolutely. thing, which I agree. That's what I kind of think is going on, too. His defense counsel, though, Ivan Lawrence, he argues that Nilsson suffered from uh, diminished responsibility rendering him incapable of forming the actual intention to commit murder and should therefore be convicted of manslaughter instead of murder for all these Ivan, crimes. go fuck yourself. Several of the survivors that got away from him, including Stoddard, remember we talked about Stoddard? Yes. He testifies at the trial. He's the one with the sleeping bag and the whole, the, the, oh, I saved it, your life. It attacked you. Yeah. <laughs> um, two psychiatrists testify on behalf of the defense. Uh, most notably, the second psychiatrist to testify named Dr. Patrick Galway. He diagnoses Nilsson with a borderline false self and pseudonormal narcissistic personality disorder. Say that five times fast. Yeah, he's a fucking asshole. And of course, we get that already. <laughs> and because of that, Nilsson did not appreciate the criminal nature of his actions. Oh, Jesus. Where the fuck did you get your degree? Right. This guy's a nutbag. Yeah. On Halloween night during the trial, the prosecution calls Dr. Paul Bowden to testify, basically to rebuke what the other psychiatrists for the defense are saying. Um, and Bowden really is kind of the man here because he had interviewed Nilsson, um, I think, what does it say on here, 16 separate times like after his arrest. So Bowden's had the most contact and like professional you know, contact with Nilsson. Um, so he testifies that although he found... Nilsson to clearly be abnormal in some way. Yeah, I mean, clearly. Clearly. Um, he had concluded Nilsson to be a manipulative person who had been capable of forming relationships, but had forced himself to objectify people. So, uh, basically... DB for the win again. Basically, he's saying, look, this guy's, you know, he's clearly fucked up, but he's in control. He knows what the fuck he's doing. Right, he's right. not out in outer space somewhere. No, this is all deliberate. Happening. Yeah. And he's very manipulative. So this, you right. know, these other psychiatrists, he's saying he manipulated them into, right. you know, thinking other things about him. 
So following closing arguments of both the prosecution and defense, the jury went into deliberations. For three minutes, and that included lunch. <laughs> right. Uh, so the following day, so it took him a day here, the jury returns with a majority verdict of guilty for the six counts of murder and one of attempted murder and a unanimous verdict of guilty in relation to the other attempted murder charge. At that point, point Judge Kroom Johnson sentenced Nilsen to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years. So oh, here again, it? I get that there are these fucking processes that judge judges have to follow. I just don't understand how you could and again, nothing against Justice Kroom jo- Johnson here. I'm sure he was following guidelines that he legally has to follow. But it's hard for me to believe that you sit in a trial and you hear everything we just talked about. And with, probably even more detail. Oh, yeah. Because we're talking about, a, what, like a two or three week trial here. This is what going on an hour and a half into our episode. Imagine the amount of detail they hear at this. And it's like life imprisonment. But you know what? 25 years minimum. So he should be able to get out in 25. Yeah, Denny is not going to be rehabilitated. Okay. The, yeah. the screw loose cannot be fixed. It, it's, it, it will remain that way until this man dies. Yeah. Well, we have a couple pieces of good news now after oh, the trial. Okay. So following his conviction, Nilsen uh, is transferred to the Wormwood Scrubs prison. What a name for a prison, right? Wormwood Scrubs. Is it like a... Sounds, sounds like a movie prison. Mm-hmm. Um, he's then transferred. He's kind of... He, they kind of bounce him around all these other prisons because inmates keep attacking him. In fact, one cut him in the face with a razor so bad he had to get shit ton of stitches on his face. Um, So, again, he's sentenced in 1983 to this 25 years to life. But in December of 1994, uh, there is what they called a whole life tariff. Tariff. Let me say that again. Whole life tariff. Um, which was written by the Home Secretary, Michael Howard, for the UK over there. And basically, this ruling ensured that he's he'd never be released Good. from prison. Like, basically, they took away that minimum 25 years and said, nope, this is, you're going to die oh, in fucking prison. Oh, they got their act together over there then. Yeah. And apparently, Nilsson accepted this. When Nilsson got word, he was like, yeah, right. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I'm not Agreed. crazy. Totally deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so, are, now, are they checking his toilets religiously in prison? Right. right. Are there inmates missing? Good Lord. Uh, so in the years following his incarceration, Nilsson composed an unpublished 400-page autobiography entitled The History of the Drowning Boy. Um, oh, Jesus. Yes. This being in reference to his concepts of the tranquility of death following his grandfather's death and his own near-fatal drowning. So a copy of this autobiography remains in the possession of uh, one of the people with whom Nielsen corresponded with in prison. So he sent this to somebody. I bet it's a real masterpiece. I really want it to be like fully released and published. It's, I bet you it is complete nutbaggery. Yeah. Like it's just, woe is me. Can you believe I'm like this? No, you're a dick. Yeah. Uh, so May 12th, 2018, just, well, shit, just about two years ago yeah. to the day. Um, Nilsson has an aor- aortic aneurysm while in prison. Shit. He's rushed into surgery um, and they repair it, but then he ends up dying after the surgery from a blood clot <laughs> that forms during <laughs> surgery. So he passes away May 12th, Like a ticking time bomb. Also important to note, seven of his victims 
remain unidentified to this day. Are you serious? Either because he did not know their name, he picked them up so quick and did his deed before he even learned what their name was. Because I, I really think he liked talking. I mean, he gave lots of details about all this right. stuff, and he knew a lot of the name. He didn't lie about anybody else. So but there's seven families yes. out there that have no clue where, where or what happened to their loved one or even if they're alive. Yeah. Oh, so, my gosh. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. So let's hope. I hope they're still working on trying to figure out who these people although at this point i would think they've probably exhausted all means as far as dna and all that stuff so i mean it's very sad well it's like at that point you know in the in the early 80s i mean they weren't really preserving evidence in the way it should be preserved so i mean even if you know they did have you know anything left it probably wouldn't be worth much very true or they wouldn't have saved it to try to like later you know identify because they're just like oh we don't do that yeah i i seriously doubt they ever i mean at this point in 2020 if they still have seven unidentified they're probably never that's it yeah yeah that's terrible crazy well hey that's our episode on good old denny nilson Jeez, that was a doozy yeah, one. I yeah. just don't know how they keep getting worse. They do. I thought with the first one we couldn't get any worse, and yeah. somehow we found nastier stories every like these people time. Are just not bags. Oh my gosh! Well, so tune in next week. More, abs- uh, more crazy and uh, absolutely nut baggery to come. We have to take a moment to thank our leading Patreon member, Cameron Bennett, again. Thank He's you, Cameron. Up there. Thank you very much. If you guys are interested in the Patreon thing, you can find that link as well as some pretty cool, crazy t-shirts and more info about us on our website, loveofmurder.com. Until next time. See you guys. See ya.